Oh, hey, amen. Uh, we've been going through the book of 1 Timothy, so take your Bible and go through 1 Timothy. We're going to get into chapter 2 tonight. i got just a quick something before you hear before uh, we get into chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll read a couple verses. <clears throat> but before we do, let's pray. Father, we sure love you. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for uh, just a break, just a pause in the middle of the week, Lord. Father, we sure need you. Uh, thank you, Lord, that... Uh, we have the freedom and the ability to come in here to this uh, church house. The heat's on and the lights are on. And Father, we can sing some songs about you, songs about heaven. Father, we sure long for heaven. And Father, we long for that day that you get us out of here. Father, until that day, Lord, I pray that you keep us faithful. Lord, keep us in your will and keep us close to thee. And uh, Lord, keep us with a tender heart to tell others about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now here, look at verse 19 and 20 again. Holding faith and a, a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So we've given a good deal of attention to shipwreck, getting shipwrecked. Now how to avoid getting shipwrecked in the Christian life. And you've got to realize your life is like a vessel. You are like a vessel in the scriptures. And uh, what you need to do as a Christian is you need to look and examine your own self in the light of where your ship, your vessel, which is your body, is floating. Now, you notice this thing about a ship real quick, and I don't know much about ships. I'm a land lover. I uh, got on a few pontoon bones in my day, and that's about it. And got in a couple fishing boats. But about this ship here, I can tell you one thing, ships run by the rudder. You know what a rudder is? And one thing you need to know about your ship is it's usually run by your rudder. And if you don't have control of your rudder, you ain't going to go where you need to go. And in the Bible, you know what your rudder is? It's your tongue. Your rudder is your tongue. That's James chapter 3, 1 to 4. And you've got to examine your ship. You've got to examine your rudder. You've got to pay close attention to your mouth. Amen. <laughs> that rudder is your tongue, and you'll notice something else about that ship. If you got a, got a ship in the bay here, um, and that thing's floating real high up. I'm not an artist, but you'll get the idea, right? So here's your, here's your watch. And if that ship, if that, thing's, if that thing's way up here, right, and that thing's floating real high, you like that? Win, lose, or draw. In my case, it's just lose. <laughs> but you see that ship out in the bay and it's floating real high. You know, you know what it shows you? It shows you ain't got much cargo on it. No, no cargo on that ship. And uh, you say, well, what is that? Well, you know, you get these proud Christians out here, you know. You know what they're doing? They're high-stepping it. They're stepping real high, real cocky about what they think they're, what they think they're doing what they're saying. You notice about these uh, high floating Christians. They always got to be the center of attention. You're doing all right? <laughs> you know, that's Sunday morning stuff. No, no it's not. <laughs> I'm just giving you a practical example. You got to examine your own ship. Amen. And you, and you take a look at some ships sometimes out in the bay and they're floating real high. They ain't got no cargo. 
and uh, <clears throat> they uh, seem to got to be the center of attention, not doing much for the Lord, you know. And uh, it's like the old preacher said, they got to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. Don't let that be you, Christian. Uh, you ought to be like Job said, that servant desireth the shadow. You, you ought to be, uh, uh, if you're second place and that's where God wants you, you ought to be satisfied with that. That's a hard thing. In America, everyone wants to be number one. You know, we're number one. We're number, yeah, you're number one, all right. Right? But you better listen that uh, when you see these Christians, these high floating Christians, all proud, means they got no merchandise. But you see that ship out in the bay, them big old, uh, them big old tankers or whatever they call them thing, you usually see them out by the, what is, that gypsum place out there. And you'll see them biggins out there, and they're way down there, aren't they? I mean, they're just like, I mean, they're floating real low. You know what that means? They got a lot in the hole. They're carrying a load, and they're not going very fast, are they? And they're just chugging along. And big ships are just chugging along. Not go- but you know what? Don't matter how bad the storm gets. They're loaded down, and they're chugging, and they're just chugging, chugging along. Now, they might need a tugboat to get into the harbor, Amen? But uh, no matter how big the waves get, they keep on a moving. And uh, look, I'd rather much, I'd much rather be loaded down than to be floating high. You see, when you're loaded down doing what God wants you to do, and then waves come, you don't move too much. But you got no merchandise in your ship, you ain't carrying nothing for the Lord, ain't doing nothing for the Lord, man, that thing will throw you all over the place. I remember going out here on Lake Huron with Brother, uh, what's his last name, Boyk. (laughs) And he had one of them three tuners. You know, it's got three pontoons. And that thing is like the Cadillac. But, man, you get out here and mend them way, start tossing you around. Ain't nothing but me and the boys and him on that thing. Man, about ready to throw up over the side of that pontoon, you know. You know, you know, why? No weight. You say, well, you're right. It's still not enough weight. Amen. <laughs> you got to get loaded down. <laughs> Amen. <clears throat> now, I'd rather much be loaded down than riding high. And I'm just saying, when it comes to your ship, you got to be careful. You don't get shipwrecked as a Christian. That's your testimony. And do what God wants you to do. Don't be afraid to take on the merchandise that God wants you to take on. Don't be afraid to take on the things that God wants you to do. Amen. It's much better to be loaded down for the Lord than to be loaded down for the world and loaded down for yourself. And uh, that'll help you from being shipwrecked. Now let's go to uh, chapter 2. Let's move on. And hopefully you got something out of uh, chapter 1 because that was quite a while. That's quite a time on that thing. Look at verse 1 here. The Bible says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. So Paul opens up chapter 2 with the exhortation that we ought to pray. See it right there. You and I ought to pray. There's no excuse. You and I ought to pray. We've got time. We just don't make the time. And if you're praying, let me encourage you to pray some more and keep on praying. Let me exhort you to keep on praying. No matter what kind of schedule you have, just keep on praying. You say, well, all I can really kind of carve out is, you know, my trip to keep on praying. Amen. Keep on talking to the Lord. I encourage you to talk to him one more time this week than you did last week. 
You say, well, I'm going to talk to him four hours a day. No, you're not going to talk to him four hours a day. Start with four minutes <laughs> and then make it five. And then by the time you think you're spiritual and you time yourself, you're still only ten. <laughs> I was thinking about that hymn writer that wrote Sweet Hour of Prayer. Good grief. When I get serious about prayer, that's a labor, man. You ever pray for an hour? I preached that message one time about the Lord talking to Peter, James, and John. Could you not watch with me for one hour? And I'm like, stinking disciples. Couldn't stay awake for an hour. It's like the Holy Spirit said, you do it. I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. So I got in the office back here. At that time, we were, this is not 2018 or 19. I'm, I'm going to take an hour and spend it with Jesus. Man, that was tough. And I got about five minutes through, 10 minutes through, 15 minutes through. I pray for everything twice, man. <laughs> Say, what'd you do? I just kind of felt there ashamed about the 20-minute mark. You say, why? We don't pray more than 20, usually. Now, if you're the exception to the rule, don't break your hand on your back. You know what I mean? But about 20 minutes, you're like, okay, now, now what? You find yourself wandering in prayer. You ever do that? You get to praying. Next thing you know, you're thinking about the stove. You're thinking about the car. You're thinking about what you got to do today. And you were just praying a minute ago. Now you're not praying. You're in la-la land. You're thinking about work. You're thinking about your problems. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Lord, here. I'm still here, by the way. <laughs> He's like, I didn't think you hung up on me. <laughs> and about 20 minutes, and then 25, and then 30, and all of a sudden I got real quiet at about 35-minute mark. And I was silent for 10 minutes. And about 45-minute mark, I started crying. Why? Could you not watch? One hour. And about the 45-minute mark, it's like the Lord come sat down beside me. And he knew I couldn't do it. But I stayed there for one hour. See, you don't always have to be talking when you pray. Maybe after you're done talking, maybe you just get quiet for a while and say, all right, Lord, I'm here. I know I'm not always here, but, you know, I'm here. And I'm just going to be here for 10 minutes, and I'm just going to be here with you. Because wherever I am, there you are too. And maybe just be quiet for 10 minutes. I don't know. I don't have the wraps on that thing, but maybe you just take some time and spend it with the Lord. You don't always have to be yammering. Don't we always pray, I want, I want, I need, I need, help, help, help. <laughs> Sometimes just, just maybe don't say anything at all. But Lord, I'm here. But... Uh, the uh, exhortation to pray. And not only in verse 1 does he teach us to pray, but verses 3 to 5, uh, he tells us we have a mediator. He tells us that we have a mediator. And that mediator is Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, in verse 5, and he helps us to pray. Now you notice that there are three types of prayer mentioned in verse 1. There's supplications. That's the first one. Take your Bible to Revelation chapter 3. I want to cover these three types of prayers here. Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. I'll tell you, first of all, that you've got supplication, and I believe that's worshiping God in prayer. That's where you worship Him. Revelation chapter 3, 20, the Bible says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, talking to the church. I know a lot of preachers have used this for salvation, for a spiritual application. I don't have a problem, but the doctrinal application is that God's out, or the, Jesus Christ is outside the church wanting to come in. You see that? He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I'll come into him and will sup with him and he with me. So we call it what? We call it supper. 
or supplications. I believe that's worshiping in God in your prayers. All right? You ever prayed like that where it's just you and the Lord? Kind of what we're talking about. Isn't it interesting right here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, the last church, the church of the Laodiceans, you know what he wants to do with them? He just wants to spend time with you and have a meal with you. Now, I'm all about being right and getting right and preaching against sin and getting all fired up about the right things, but you know what Jesus wants to do with you? He just wants to have a meal. He wants to feed you. He wants to spend time with you. And so that first thing, that thing about supplications, you see that word sup, and that's worshiping God in prayer. It's a, you've been a, just a time in prayer. It's just you and the Lord. You're not praying for anybody. You know, and like once in a million times, you're not praying for something. <laughs> and it's just you just worshiping God. You're, what you're doing is you're thanking God for what he's done. Thank you, Lord, for uh, keeping me healthy this week. Thank you, Lord, for the job you've given me. Thank you, Lord, for... My wife, at 26 years, my goodness, she could have walked out a long time ago, but she didn't. She stuck with me. Amen? Thank you for my children. Thank you, Lord, for my church. Thank you, Lord, the lights are on. The bills are paid for. Thank you. You see what I mean? And you're just thanking God for what he's done. You're thanking God for who he, Thank you, Lord, for going to the cross for me. There's no way I could have went to the cross for anybody. I'd have reviled when they reviled against me. Why? Because I ain't no good. And you just kind of thank God for who He is, you know. And uh, that's what you call supplication. That's an earnest entreaty. It's a prayer of worship. Well, the second one you'll notice after supplication, Paul simply just says prayers. That's all he says. And prayers are ge a general request. Those are your prayers. Uh, look at Luke chapter 11. <clears throat> Luke chapter 11. You pray and you make a request. Luke chapter 11. You make your request unto God. I believe we probably do that almost every day. Those are prayers. Look at Luke chapter 9, 11 rather, I'm sorry. Verse 9, the Bible says in verse 9, And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. I guess probably the greatest little lesson in prayer is that acrostic, right? That acrostic ask. First one is ask, the second one is seek, and the third one is knock. But you got to ask. That's your prayers. That's just general requests. That's your prayers right there. All right. <clears throat> and then thirdly, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, you have what? You got intercessions. Intercessions. And uh, intercessions means you're interceding. You're praying for somebody. Kind of like standing between you and the Lord and that person, right? As you might pray, God save my dad. God save my brother. Praying for family members. You're interceding on their behalf. Uh, God opened the doors for my brothers over here. And uh, Lord help the missionaries over here. You're interceding for them. Uh, now, look at this. I'll show you the difference. Romans chapter 11. You can intercede for somebody or for a thing, and you can intercede against something. That's scriptural. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, look at verse 2. The Bible said, God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not what the scripture saith of Elias? 
how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. You see what Elijah's doing there? He's interceding against his own people. So intercession or intercessory prayer can be for somebody, or it can be against somebody. Uh, if somebody was persecuting you out in this community, you might pray, Lord, get them. <laughs> you, you would. Uh, if someone's lost, you say you intercede for them. Lord, save them, please. Lord, save them. Do you ever intercede for some lost individual? And, uh, and when you intercede, I don't know how you intercede, but you, know, you ever stop and think about interceding for somebody so God can get the glory out of that thing? You take the, the, if you could take the, this county's worst individual and that person could get saved, imagine what they could do for the Lord. Imagine the town drunk, they used to call it, right? Now it's, you know, the town's got a bunch of drunks, right? Like if you're not drunk, you must, something be wrong with you. Can you imagine some of you know and be a town drunk or something like that? They get saved, how many people they know, the influence they could have. You ever pray that? Lord, would you save somebody so you can get honor and glory? Just think of what, what uh, that person could do if that person got saved instead of just putting another notch on your soul winning belt. You know what I mean? I'm not saying you do that. You stop sometimes and think beyond your own scope of reason there. Look at Isaiah 59. I'll show you this thing. Now, what we need today is men and women willing to make intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer. Now listen, in your stage of spiritual growth, the younger you are in the Lord, the less you'll pray for other people. And the older you grow in the Lord, you'll stop worrying about your own needs and you'll start praying for other people. Now Isaiah 59. Now that's difficult. You say, why? Because I tend to gravitate towards praying for my needs. And you ought to pray your own needs, amen? But there ought to come a time in your spiritual life where you just start praying for other people and start interceding on their behalf. Look at Isaiah 59, 14. Now we're listing those three prayers that Paul gives you in 1 Timothy 2. Isaiah 59, 14, the Bible says, And judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth. And he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey, and the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. You know what makes the Lord upset? People with no judgment. You catch that? You hear the big uh, taboo phrase, one of the many today is, uh, you shouldn't judge. You hear that a lot. You can't, only God can judge me. Translation, I want to be happy in my sins, so shut up and leave me alone. <laughs> That's what that translated is. But you know why God was upset at Israel? They had no judgment. They just let everything go. Everything was accepted. All right, justice standeth far off. That's what the passage said. Truth has fallen. Equity cannot enter. Now watch this, verse 16. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. You see that? That's the Lord. There's no truth in the street. It's fallen down. Sound familiar? There's no truth on your street unless you take the truth out in the street. It's been trodden under. Wickedness is prevailing, is it not? Just walk into any shop downtown. 
There's wickedness everywhere you go. You got to take the truth out there. And the Lord, he's out there and he's wondering that there's no intercessor, that nobody was praying, asking God to do something right in that passage. The Lord's wondering about that. Isn't that wild? That's a great preaching passage. It says, Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness that sustained him. So you know what the Lord is looking for today, Christian? He's looking for someone to pray. I know some people today, they're like, I can't do any, I can't do what I used to do. Okay, can you pray? Sure you can. The Lord is looking for someone to pray, and the Lord is looking for an intercessor. And here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, there are three types of prayer, and we just covered them. I exhort, therefore, back in 1 Timothy 2, 1, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for what? All men. <laughs> now, you notice we're to pray for all men, and we're to give thanks, right? So part of prayer is what? Giving thanks. Are you thankful in your prayers? You ever just take time to say, thank you, Lord? Man, it's easy to get off running a gun in prayer and forget about being thankful, isn't it? And uh, I'll be the first one to testify about that. Even before God answers your prayer, you ought to give thanks for what God's done for you. What's He doing? So supplication is like a prayer worship. Prayers is like a general quest. And intercessions can be for or against somebody. Now watch this thing in verse 2. Verse 2. For kings and for all that are in authority. So we're to pray for all the kings. That's what the passage says. And you pick that up in Romans chapter 13. You're supposed to pray for them and you're supposed to obey them. That's Romans 13. Now Christians have forgot about that. They think because a king doesn't uh, you know, line up with their political viewpoint that they just cuss them and damn them all the time. But you get over there in Romans chapter 13, and you're supposed to obey those that are, have the rule over you, especially uh, kings and leaders. So we're supposed to pray for all that are in authority. Now, what in the world is the reason why God would have us pray for these people? Watch. We pray for the kings. We pray for the rulers. We pray for those that are in authority over us. Verse 2 says that we, that's the Christian, right? That's you and that's me, may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So we pray for our public representatives. Amen. We pray for our president. Man, good night. If there was ever a president to pray for, this is the one to pray for. The guy should be in an old folks home. You ought to pray for him. Huh. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm being serious. You ever hear the guy talk? That's, your pre that's my president. Take me to your leader. No. <laughs> I'm going to go pray for him, <laughs> right? Amen. You pray for your president, your senators. How about the police chiefs? You pray for them. Why? That they might do their job so we can live a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and honesty. You want them passing legislations? No, it doesn't mean you get all crazily politically. That's what he's talking about. You got to pray for them so they can pass the right laws and legislations so persecution don't come your way and you, you, don't, you stop serving the Lord. You pray for them so you can live a quiet and peaceable life. Now listen, besides the prices going through the roof, amen, besides inflation, right now can you live a quiet and peaceable life for the most part? Sure you can. Now is that because of your prayer life? Maybe it's more the grace of God than anything else. You stop and think of how good we actually have it. 
Look, I'm not in uh, agreement with probably 95% of the politics, but man, we sure do have it good here. You say the things that we say and talk about here in Iran and Iraq, they cut your cotton picking head off. Try this in Pakistan. That ain't going to happen. But you pray for them so you can live a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. That's why you pray for them. Now, this world that you and I are living in today is a joke. It's an absolute joke. We're not praying that God will save the world. Take your Bible, go to John chapter 17. I'm not praying that God will save the world. I pray that God will help uh, these people do their job until Christ comes back so I can live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Jesus never prayed for the world. John 17, 9. I'm sure you know this, but I want to show it to you. You pray for kings and you pray for rulers so you can live the right kind of Christian life. And I would say this, maybe not you, probably not you, but too many times I hear Christians cussing our leaders and I wonder if they pray for them as much as they cuss them. I understand that Jesus Christ called Herod a fox, but that's only one recording in the Bible ever. And he told him the truth. But the rest of the time, when Jesus was in front of Herod, Jesus didn't open his mouth, didn't say a word. All right, 17.9. Jesus says, I pray for them, talking about those, uh, his brethren. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Christ didn't pray for the world, the world system. Why? He knows what's going to happen to the world. What's going to happen? Well, it's going to be burned up with fire and fervent heat, isn't it? So this world peace stuff, it's a joke. It's an absolute joke. If you pray for the world to have peace, you're a fool. You ought to be praying for Jesus Christ to come back. That's the only way it'll have peace. You say, how is it going to have peace? Jesus Christ comes back on a white horse at the second advent, and he slaughters about three billion people. Then there will be peace for a thousand years. <laughs> Good morning. And if you suffer, you'll come back with them, and you'll be hacking off heads on white horses. Amen. Amen. Thank you. That's Bible. <laughs> like, oh, you swore in church. <laughs> All right, you need to pray for Christ to come back. Now, this world we live in today, right here, it has three more applications to it. Number one, in Revelation chapter 6 begins the tribulation. Revelation chapter 6, you got the tribulation. That's a separate world altogether. All right, three more applications. There's the first one. And you're not going to change this world that you and I live in by social government, by voting in a better one. A lot of these crazy Christians, you know what they think? They think we're going to vote it in and vote it in and vote it in and get it better and get it better. And when it gets all perfect and better, then the Lord's going to come back. That ain't how it rolls, man. It gets worse and worse, the Bible says. Now, I'm not happy with it getting worse and worse. And the problem with a lot of Bible believers is I think they actually delight to see this country going downhill. It breaks my heart. But listen, you have to learn to separate from this world. And it's okay to love your country. But you better be more of a Christian than you are a patriot. Because if you're more of a patriot than you are a Christian, you'll love this world, and this world is going to burn. And if you're in love with this world, you will not do what Christ wants you to do while you're here. You'll be worried about getting this world a better place to be, and it ain't ever going to be a better place to be. It's only going to get worse. All right, number two, the second application of this world is in Revelation 19 and 20. That's the millennial reign. Revelation 19 to 20. 
That's the millennial reign, 1,000 years. That's a different world altogether. You still with me? I'm talking about three applications, future applications of this world. You've got the tribulation, Revelation 6, Revelation 19.20, and then Revelation 21 and 22. You have eternity. And guess what happens in eternity? You have a new heaven and a new earth. That's a completely different world altogether. So you don't pray for this world. If you're going to pray, you pray for kings, you pray for rulers, you pray for all that are in authority, and you pray so that you can live a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty, and you pray for Jesus Christ to come back. Another reason you pray for kings is because they're not saved. You ever pray for their salvation? Well, I'm just going to intercede against them because, you know, he is always increasing all the prices, and now my whole, okay, fine, intercede against him, but do you pray he ought to get saved? He says, pray for all men, right? You ought to pray for their salvation. <clears throat> all right. Uh, you pray for their salvation. Why? Well, they're not saved. This world is shot. Never going to turn around. Now look at verse 3. I want you to see this. When you pray with supplications in verse 1, prayers, intercessions, and giving thanks, when you pray for the kings and all that are in authority in verse 2, and you got the right prayer, what happens in verse 3? For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So when you do the things that are in verse 1 and 2, now you want to be good and acceptable in the sight of God, then you have a supplicating prayer life, you have regular prayers in your life, you have an interceding prayer life, you give thanks in your prayer life, because most of our prayers are I need, right? All right, and what happens is when you pray like that, it's good and acceptable. And if you want to be good and acceptable to God, then that's how you're supposed to pray. Isn't that strange? Look at the next verse, verse 4. Who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Take your Bible, look at Second Peter. I'm going to show you a verse that goes right along with it. Who will have all men to be saved. All men. You want to remember that phrase, all men. 2 Peter chapter 3. Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Amen, amen. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see that? Now listen, we don't teach the foolishness of Calvinism. You need to understand that. The foolishness of Calvinism is found in their little acrostic called Tulip. That stuff's crazy, man. God said here in uh, verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Take your Bible, look at uh, verse 1 of 2 Timothy. We just started with it. I want you to see there's a phrase that connects the thing. 2.1, he says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplication, prayers, intercessions, and giving thanks to be made for who? All men. Verse 4, who will have, that's the same all men. You know what the Calvinists will tell you? They'll tell you right to your face that all men has to do with the elect. Baloney, the all men of verse 4 has to do with the all men of verse 1. That thing's as clear as the nose of my face. And all men, in verse 1, aren't saved. 
all men in verse 1 are not just the elect. All men is all men. <laughs> You'd have to be educated to miss that thing. So what they do is they like to take passages like John chapter 12 and verse 40. That's what a Calvinist will do. And I'll give you some of their Kool-Aid so you know which direction they're going. They'll give you passages like John 12, 40. Uh, they'll give you uh, John 6, 44. John 6, 44. And we'll look at these. And they'll give you John 10, 16. And then they'll take these passages and they'll shove them all into Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and try to tell you it's before Calvary. I'm sorry, it's after Calvary. They're crazy. Now look, let's look what these verses say. <clears throat> John chapter 12, verse 40. Don't take my word for it. Look at the Bible. See what the Bible has to say. You say, how come every chance you get, you hit this stuff? Because you need to hear it. There's Calvinism alive in a lot of Baptist churches around here. And one of the ways you, you hear it, and it's a sneaky one, I'll get back to this while you're going to John 12:40, And that uh, stupid acrostic tulip, that last one, that last one they say is uh, perseverance of the saint. And a lot of Baptists sign off. They'll say, well, I'm a one-pointer. I'm not a five-pointer. And they'll say, I'm a, I'm a one-pointer because I believe that uh, a Christian who's saved is always saved. But you know what they preach? This is what they preach. They preach this, if you're saved, then your life will change to reflect it. You know what that is? That's Calvinism. You know why? The Bible says if you're in the flesh, you can't please God. You know what that means? You're rotten. And when you're rotten, you can do just about anything a lost man can do except go to hell. And let me tell you what, that Calvinist will get up there and say, I'll tell you what, you know you're saved because you're living like you're saved. And the dumb Baptist will get up there and go, I'll tell you what, if you haven't changed your life after you got saved, then you probably never got saved. Have you heard that before? Well, okay, fine, well and done. Nice, nice job, Mr. Calvinist. I'll tell you what, you can do anything that a lost person can do. If you're not right with the Lord, your fellowship ain't right. And why Baptists fall off the cliff on that perseverance of the saint is because they have no idea the difference between standing and state. And you all know the difference between standing and state. Your standing is with Jesus Christ. And that never changes, it's fixed. But your state is your fellowship personally with Him. And that thing can fluctuate every single day. And let me tell you what. There's been many days where you didn't live like you were saved. But you were still saved, thank the Lord. Why? Because your standing with Him is fixed. Now, you've got to watch out for that stuff. John chapter 12, verse 40, look what it says. He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. So a Calvinist will throw that verse at you and say, see, there's some people right there that will never be saved because the Lord blinded them. And what happens, they're ignorant. And uh, what that is, is that's not talking about an individual. That's talking about the nation of Israel. And they take that thing and they put it on the church. And uh, look at John 10. I'll show you another one. Every heresy in the Bible comes from an inability to rightly divide the word of truth. John chapter 10. And what I just told you there is why some people leave this church. 
John chapter 10, 10, 16. The Bible says, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And so Calvinist tries to tell you that there's some people that are going to be saved because they're not part of, are not going to be saved because they're not part of the elect, and they'll throw that verse in your face. And that thing's about as confusing as a snowstorm on the way home. Don't make any sense at all. To which we say, baloney. What is it? That's a private interpretation by a Calvinist. And that's one of their key verses. Has nothing to do with the church. Has nothing to do with anybody getting saved. I'll look at John 6.44. I'll give you one more. Uh, these are the obscure passages they run you in a circle with if you get in a conversation with these guys. And if it comes to this point, I try to give you this stuff to arm you, but if you can get out of the conversation, get out of it. It's not going to be edifying. But you need to understand what they're going to throw at you. Look at John 6, 44, and this is what they'll throw at you. The Bible says, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up that last day. Isn't that interesting? Let's read that again. This is one of the Calvinists' favorite verses. No man can come to me, John 6, 44, except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Calvin is pretty confident with that verse. Matter of fact, most Baptists get up, they get all trembly when you get to that verse. All right? And they'll say this, well, a man can't be saved unless the Father draws him. All right, you moron, look at John 12. Nobody reads their Bible anymore. Get sick and tired of this stuff. Throw Calvinism out. You get Calvinism in this church, it will die. Calvinism is the byproduct of a man who thinks he's smarter than God. And if you're intellectual, you got to watch out for it because that's how the devil will entice you if you're smart. You say, well, that must be why you... Yes, that's why I have not been enticed with Calvinism. Because I have just an average intellect. All right, you need to understand that the Lord will save any man. Now look at John 6, 37. Nope, that's not the one I want. You want uh, John 12, 32. I'm sorry. 12, 32. Jesus takes care of Calvinism in one verse. Look what he says. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to me. There it is. You know where the drawing was done? At Calvary. You see it? It's right there. He told you. Well, nobody can say unless the Father draw him. The drawing's at Calvary. And he tells you, if I be lifted from the earth, there it is, will draw how many men? <laughs> all men to me. Not just the elect, all men. Throw Calvinism out. All right? Now look at John six thirty-seven. This is one you need to remember, too. Even if you didn't have the one in John 12, 32, John 6, 37 says, And him that cometh to me, I will what? In no wise cast out. You see that? Calvinism will say some people can be saved and some people can't be saved. Jesus Christ says, You come to me, I won't cast you out. Sorry, Calvin. All right, back to 1 Timothy 2, 4. 1 Timothy 2, 4. Now, like we said, you want to notice that all men of verse 4 is the same all men of verse 1, all right? 
prayers are being made for all men in verse 1. The all men that can be saved in verse 4 are the all men that we're praying for in verse 1. So when a Calvinist comes along and tells you the all men of verse 4 are only talking about the elect, he is what my brother says, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. You just ignore him. You can't read fourth grade English. Amen? You see in verse 1, all men are being prayed for. In verse 1, thanks is being given for all men. And in verse 4, the Lord would have all men to be saved. And uh, they always mess up on things like that. <clears throat> all right, now these uh, Calvinists are always talking about how Christ only died for the elect. Uh, like I said, that stuff's crazy. We showed you in 2 Peter chapter 3 and 9, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, right? Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, just a couple more verses and we'll get off this thing. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. Paul says here, Of how much sore punishment, verse 29, Suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith uh, was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite in the Spirit of grace. That verse simply, don't get bogged down in it, that verse simply shows you that if a man doesn't come to Christ and he knows about it, then he gets a sore punishment. And uh, so Christ died for all. That, that tulip stuff is absolutely stupid. And you need to take that attitude against it because if you become warm and inviting about Calvinism, then you'll, be, you'll start digging into it and you'll start believing it and you'll be screwed up just like they are. All right, now look over Ezekiel 33. You need to see this. Ezekiel 33. You think the Lord is up there, you know, you know, like uh, uh, petals on a flower. Uh, you're saved. You're not saved. You're saved. You're not saved. Uh, you're crazy. Ezekiel chapter 33, look at verse 11. The Lord says, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You see that? But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? The Lord has no pleasure in anyone dying and going to hell. All right? Back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Who will have all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. Now, here's the greatest thing of verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. The greatest thing of the whole chapter so far is verse 5. Look at it. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, that's a great passage there, and you ought to commit that thing to memory. You ought to write that thing down on a 3 by 5 card and stick it in your pocket and stick it in your purse, and every time you think about it, pull it out and read it, and don't take it out until you memorize it. I'm telling you what, Scripture memorization will help you in your Christian life, and we've gotten away from it. My, we've gotten away from it. Our, our mothers and our fathers used to memorize scriptures. Our grandmothers, our grandfathers used to memorize scripture. And now, here in 2023, nobody memorizes scripture anymore. We used to have stacks of three by five cards on the table in the home as uh, children with verses on them. Now we no longer have it in the home. Why? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And the problem today is what? Is sin. All right? <clears throat> That's one of the... One of the verses that Catholics hate most, all right? And there's about 16 or more verses in the Bible that the Catholics hate, and that one's 1 Timothy 1.5. Let me show you another one, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Now, you know you're a soldier in the army, right? 
And that means that uh, someone's after you and you're in a battle. And I think often you forget that you're in the fight. But there's many things warring against you. There's a lot of things against you. And I like what Martin Luther said back uh, in the 1500s when he nailed those 95 theses. I said it right this time. To the church, uh, to the church door. One of the cardinals, one of them birds said, Martin, the whole world's against you. And he stood up and he says, and I'm against the world. <laughs> Amen. You ought to be like uh, in the book of Revelation, Antipas, the faithful martyr. You say, what does Antipas mean? Oh, he's against everything. <laughs> Amen. You ought to be that in your Christian life. Amen. And you ought to be against this stuff. And you ought to know what it is. Hebrews chapter 10. Look at this now. Above when he said sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Hebrews 10, 9. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, talking about the Old Testament, right? That he may establish the second, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's where you get your hymn, once for all. Verse 11, Catholics hate this. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifice. So stop right there. This is a good verse to show your Catholic friends, not to make them mad, but just to get them to think. You say, do you have a priest that offers sacrifices every week? They'll say, yes, I sure do. Every single week you do the Mass. Every single week he's up there, you know, hocus pocus, dominocus, and all that stuff, and fee-fi-fo-fum, and however he does that thing. But look what the verse says. And offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. You know what they believe? All that Fruit Loop stuff up there and dance around and sacrifice and take away your sins. Verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever, forever sat down on the right hand of God. Now, Catholics hate those verses that know uh, the doctrine of Catholicism and they take them out. And their uh, versions take them out of their Bible as well and change them. Look at Matthew 23, 9. I'll give you another one. The best part of 1 Timothy chapter 2 is verse 5, and uh, was one man, one God, and one, uh, there is a one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And the Catholics hate that verse, and they hate a bunch of other verses. I'm going to show you a couple. 23.9, Matthew 23.9. Take them right out of their Bible. 23.9, you'll never guess what this one is. Bible says, Matthew 23, 9, Call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. That entire passage is about religious leaders. Never call me father unless you're my child. <laughs> my soul. All right, I'll give you another one, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You'll see why in this one. 1 Corinthians 10. The passages that Catholics hate. 1 Corinthians 10, look at verse 2. 1 Corinthians 10, 2 says, And we're all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock, capital R, you see it? I'm not talking about Dwayne Johnson either. That followed them, and that rock was what? You see it? Underline it. That rock was Christ. Grab Matthew 16 and 18, I'll show you why they hate it. This is why they hate it. Your Bible says that rock was Christ. That's talking about Jesus Christ is the what? He's the rock. All right, Matthew 16, 18. 
Every Catholic from here to Hawaii knows about Matthew 16, 18 because they claim Peter's the rock. But your Bible said Christ was the rock. 16, 18. The Bible said, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock. Who's the rock? Right. I will build my church. So the Catholic Church says, okay, Peter, you're the rock. Why? Because they fail to understand Scripture. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So that verse in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, uh, uh, coupled with uh, Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy 32. I'll show it to you again. Deuteronomy 32. The rock wasn't Peter. The rock was Christ. Deuteronomy 32.30. Only in the King James Bible. Deuteronomy 32.30. All right, the Bible says in 32.30, how should one chase a thousand? Ain't that something? <laughs> it happened. You get one little Jew, a thousand of their enemies run. <laughs> I chase anybody and <laughs> <They> laugh. <laughs> And two put 10,000 to flight, except their capital R-O-C-K. You see that? Now you know who the rock is, right? You know who fights for Israel? The Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's Exodus chapter 15. Except their rock had sold them and the Lord had shut them up. For their, look at it, here's your proof text, for their small R-O-C-K is not as our capital R, you see that? That's the Catholic Church right there. They say it's Peter. You know what the Lord says? No, their rock's not as our rock. Even our enemies themselves being judges. How about this? For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. You ever stop and think about this world's way of church and worshiping? You just saw it. If you looked at the, if you looked at the Super Bowl, that's what they worship. They gathered all around that stadium. I watch the game. I'm not getting that. Relax. Preachers all over this country, you know, confining people to hell or purgatory because they watch the Super Bowl. I just say, mind your own cotton picking beeswax, man. But that's, that's the lost church. Everyone goes to church. That's what they worship. You know what they had in the middle? You know how you know it's what they worship? They had special music in, uh, at the halftime show, didn't they? They did. It was very special, yeah bunch of knotheads, but that's the lost special music. You say, why are you saying that? For their rock is not as our rock. Even our enemies themselves being judged, for their vine is of the vine of Sodom. Don't they partake of a special drink every day? Don't you do the Lord's Supper every now and then? He says, for their vine is of the vine of Sodom. You see it? I'm just showing you the difference. And of the fields of Gomorrah, their grapes are grapes of gall. When you take the Lord's Supper, you sleep like a baby. When they take their, their vine, their grapes, they have a rough time with it, don't they? They're bitter. Their clusters are bitter. All right, I'll show you another Luke chapter 8. I'm hoping this is helping you. The job of a preacher is not to tell you what you want to hear. The job of a preacher is to root you and ground you in this book. Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 20. Here's another passage the Catholics hate. The Bible says in Luke 8, 20, It was told him by certain which said, Thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to see thee. 
8.21, and he answered and said to them, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God. You know why the Catholics hate that? What do the Catholics believe about Mary? Perpetual virgin, right? All right, I'll show you one more on that thing. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 1. This goes hand in hand with that, Matthew chapter 1. A diehard Catholic believes in the perpetual virginity of Mary and that Mary only had one son, Jesus. Well, the Bible's real clear that Mary had more than just Jesus. And that's why when you get here to Matthew 125, all your new Catholic versions remove the word firstborn. Look at 25. And he knew her not, talking about Joseph, until she had brought forth her, that word's out in every new translation put out by the Roman Catholic Church, firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. You see that? That's a passage that the Catholics hate. You say, why do you show that? Because you should know it. Study to show thyself approved unto God. And in first, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, uh, Catholics don't believe in the mediator. You know what they believe in? They believe in a matriarchist or a mediatrix. And a matriarch is a woman. That's what a Catholic believes. These Catholics believe that a woman is standing between you and God. What does your King James Bible says? The man. But the Catholics believe that it's a woman. Well, all you got to do is read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. That's why I gave you that. Now, look, I know you don't have trouble with that. But you need to understand where the Catholics are coming from. They've been taught this from their youth. It's been in their catechism. Let me read you this and we'll close. I'm going to read you an excerpt from a book used by Catholic priests, and it's the real deal, all right? In other words, I'm not preaching. I'm not embellishing. I'm telling you the truth. It's from March 30th, 1968. It's called Our Catholic Truths. It should be called Our Catholic Lies. And it's used by Catholic priests to teach us dumb Protestants how to understand faith. <laughs> now, here's what they say, and I quote, does not Scripture say there is one mediator? Scripture speaks of one mediator, which was Christ. The Catholic Church does not deny that all greatness comes to us through Christ and that He is the primary mediator. However, this does not exclude secondary mediators for business or politics. There is a famous saying, it, is, it isn't what you know, but whom you know. Why do we pray to Mary, the mother of God and the saints? We pray to them to ask them to intercede with God for us. We do not ask them to grant anything of themselves, for they have nothing of themselves to grant. In these prayers to the mother of God and to the saints, we acknowledge our own unworthiness and appeal before God, and at the same time, we acknowledge our dependency on the mother of God and our dependency on the saints to get our prayers to God. And if you believe that, you're nuts. You can't be saved and believe that. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.5, and we're done, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. All right, we'll stop right there. Now you know why a lot of preaching is feminine. Because a lot